0: Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Henhouse Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the sewn Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at UnionTone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumb Picks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy, and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra tight spring tensions available. Check them out at BlackMountainPicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past, it's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off the cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey, folks! Welcome to the show. This is episode number 111 with my guest Will Kimbrough, a fellow Nashvilleian, a hell of a guitar picker. He's a sideman to many, a session player, songwriter, and all-around musical dude. I hope everyone's doing well out there. Hope all you musicians out there are finding your way back into doing things out in the world. It's such a crazy time. I'm really starting to see sort of a chasm open up between the folks that are back out there fully working and others that are kind of struggling more to get stuff happening with all the new restrictions and cancellations and travel issues and whatever else is cropping up these days. I went up to Alberta in Canada to play a festival last week and the day before I flew up, they had their audience yanked due to a resurgence of COVID and a whole bunch of new restrictions came in about 16 hours before my flight. So we still went and it was awesome to play with my bandmates and all that, but we ended up streaming to an essentially empty room, which isn't really what anyone had in mind. So we all adapt, I guess. It's a little (laughs) tricky to feel any sense of normalcy right now. And I know folks are struggling out there with that. So hang in there everybody and hope you're doing okay. Um, There's a slight shift in the way I'm gonna be releasing these episodes for the next while. Uh, If you are a regular, regular listener, you know that it's been once a month for this whole season and I had banked up a bunch of interviews and now I feel like they're sitting too long and some of the stuff we're talking about is like, it's just borderline getting a little ridiculous. So I'm going to start releasing new episodes now at least every two weeks, maybe even more for the next little while and that will allow me to get all of these ones that have been sitting for too long out before the end of 2021. Then I'm going to take a little pause to do some more episodes and I'll kick into season six, probably in March or April. So stay tuned about that. But I will be back with a new episode in two weeks time. I can tell you that for sure right now. And before we get going this week, I'd just like to thank some of the recent financial supporters of the show. I couldn't do it without you. So many thanks to David Volrath, Chuck Wasserberg, Mike Dolphin in Vancouver, Rosemary Costello, Thanks so much, you guys. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the support. Uh, Okay, today's guest is Will Kimbrough. He's a perfect guest for the show. He's a phenomenal player and musician. He does manage to slip under the radar a little bit, as he often chooses to back up other artists, either in their band or in the studio. He plays regularly, though, with Emmylou Harris and the Red Dirt Boys, and he makes solo albums of his own in between tours and he also works extensively with all kinds of other artists some of the people that he's worked with in the studio or or live are Todd Snyder and Rodney Crowell and even Jimmy Buffett and we'll get into all that stuff in our talk we also get into his guitar collection and some of that kind of nerdy info and also how he approaches recording sessions and just his general career and vibe he put out a killer solo album in 2020 called Spring Break that i would encourage you all to check out and you can get all the latest news on what he is up to at willkimbro.com. So thanks again for tuning in. And now please enjoy my conversation with Will Kimbrow.
1: Uh, I moved here in 1988 and I lived in East Nashville and East Nashville was a lot different back then.
0: I was going to ask you about that, actually. I, I'm really interested to know about how Nashville's changed, especially from like a from like a working musician's point right. of view, you know, like what yeah. what the actual scene was like back then as
2: yeah. opposed
1: to now as far as musicians, it's, it's not that much different. I mean, you know, you still are here and there's a lot of musicians and there, and I'm, you know, at this, in this time in my life, I'm more of a songwriter in terms of being a professional, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that's what I do. That's how I make my living. And, and, and being a musician is a, a course huge part of that. Um, but I mean, I still play on sessions, occasionally play guitar with somebody. I I play with Emmy Lou, but she, you know, that the last year it's you don't play with anybody. And so, but when I moved here, there was a, still a thriving, uh, little rock and roll scene. Mm -hmm. And although, and also, man, there's so many differences, I guess, you know, I moved to Nashville in January of 88. I was in a, a working band, we moved here because there was interest in our band here. Although in 1988, you would not get a deal in Nashville for a rock band. It would okay. simply not happen. There would be no crossover.
0: Right. It was a country town, strictly
1: country town. Uh, there are a bunch of great, uh, you know, Steve Earle was here, but he was a country artist. Right. Lyle Lovett had a deal here, but in those days, Lyle Lovett was a country artist. Yeah. Nancy Griffith was on a major label, country artist, you know, and, um, But there were also people like Randy Foster and Bill Lloyd, Foster and Lloyd, who one of the, I think the last show I played here before I moved here, we opened for Bill Lloyd. And it was the release party for his first solo power pop record called Feeling the Elephant. Mm -hmm. And on that same exact day, Foster and Lloyd hit number one with their debut single. Crazy. In Country. So, so that's what Steve Earle used to call the great credibility scare.
2: <laughs>
1: that Nashville flirted with, because um, Nashville's always had great stuff that was under the radar, or great writers that other artists covered. You know, like Van Zandt, Earl, David Olney, and then of course the great country writers, Harlan Howard, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But at that late 80s, there was this moment where it was tied up with the producer and record executive, Tony Brown, really. Cause he signed Lyle Lovett, Nancy Griffith, Joe Ely, Todd Snyder. Um, was Todd Snyder living here then? No, he lived in Memphis.
2: Oh, okay. But it was,
1: but it was, you know, it, Nashville MCA was like, had their hands on him. So, okay. and um, so, and, and they had Steve Earl, you know, and so, and then Foster and Lloyd had a huge number one debut single. While openly talking about the Beatles and the Birds and REM and right. you know it was like, and then it just kind of, then it kind of shut down and you get into the era of Garth, with no offense to Garth or whatever, but it changed things, yeah. And then you got into the, the the peak of Shania and the big records and the feeding at the trough, and of course my ignorant butt missed all that because I was pursuing what I what I loved. And I was just making a living for my family, and you know, like, so I, 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 uh, I just was on the road the whole time. Like, you know, when when you could get a publishing deal and get like an album cut on a, a record by an artist that most people would probably not remember today, that probably sold four million copies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm kind of joking about that. But
0: so this is Will and the Bushmen is is the band. Will and the Bushman
1: moved about. here when we had. So you move you, a rock band could move to Nashville and live. We lived in East Nashville on Chapel Avenue. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, in a gigantic house that had a, a basement, a finished basement we could rehearse in. We had uh, our band, our girlfriends, and half of Delbert McClinton's band. And um, <laughs> so we had like 10 renters for $500 a month, split 10 ways. Wow. So it was really easy to move to Nashville in 1988. 50 bucks, <laughs> 50 bucks, and about 20 bucks for utilities each, maybe. Yeah. And then you're. That's were, doable. The rest is, you know.
0: Was that part of the appeal? Like, I don't really understand why in Nashville for you guys, if if you were a, a fledgling rock band that had a following and stuff.
1: Well, think about this. If you could if you could move to Nashville and have access to the industry, even though it wasn't direct in that town, then and you could live for $50, $75 a month as far as, you know, you know let's just say $200 a month with food. Yep. Then why would, then there's, we compare it to moving to New York or LA at the time. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm probably too practical to do the, you know, the other stuff. I just was like, I'm not moving there. I can't afford it. Yeah. I won't be able to do what I do. We were a working band, so we could, we could live in Nashville and continue to work and make a living and do our own thing. Because we had already put out a record and put out a 45 and we had gotten written up and spin and Village Voice and all this stuff. So we were already on our on own way. terms making our way. But at that time, you couldn't just... You didn't think you could. We probably should have just stayed, continued making our own records and just doing our thing. but we got signed. And so we're based in Nashville. Uh-huh. and another thing is we're from the deep south. We're from all the way down Mobile, Alabama, all the way down uh, by new orleans and, and Pensacola, Florida. So to drive to New York from Mobile is a whole other thing. And it's that's like twenty twenty six hours to drive a, yeah. to 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 New York from Nashville is seventeen hours, you know right. sixteen hours. so, and that's what you did. So we went and showcased in New York like 10 times and we do, we do these little tours, you know, Chapel Hill, DC, you know, New York, Boston, drive back and, uh, and then, and then play the South.
0: That's a big advantage to Nashville. Like it really is centrally located in that way. You, so you that's are, the reason
1: yeah. that, you know, you're already tour. We're already a touring band. So okay. we could expand, we could go to Chicago in eight hours, eight hours, we'd go to DC in 12 by 10 hours. So it was very, yeah, we could go back home in eight hours, seven hours. So, and, um, and so we, we got, we had, a, we got management and we started showcasing and demoing and then we got signed like, um, less than a year after we moved, like a year, exactly a year. Yeah. So we moved in and I remember we signed a lease. We didn't even look at, we didn't even move anything into the house. We just went to a show and drove out of town and then we drove <laughs> back to the, the kind of stuff we moved in. Story of your life. So it was cool. You know, it was the. And that, that always made us feel we you know how a band is. I mean, it's, I do, it's your gang. Yeah. When things are going well for your band, it's you against the world or like, you know, we're here and we're going to leave together. And we all think each other is cool. And then we still all felt that way about each other. It was a band of friends from our hometown. So, and every, a lot of Nashville bands have been put together here. and People have put together bands for like how people looked and how they dressed. And we weren't like that. So we felt, we, we felt cooler, you know, which is funny to think about now, th- feeling like you're cool when you're, you know, the middle aged person. You're not. You're not ever going to be cool again until you're really old and you can actually <laughs> yeah, hobble out there and play. They're going to be like that old guy's pretty cool. We should give him a lifetime achievement for him. But you know, and then middle age is also where you know know how to do what you do and you can enjoy it more.
0: Yeah, man. I you know I I think that's really an interesting point and. Something that we should also talk about is like this point where like I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'd imagine i'm fifty six and okay so mid fifties and you've been doing this since you were probably a teenager, and yeah. like you're you know you've got all these aspects to what you do really well, and you've been established now, you know like as a songwriter, as a sideman, as a session player um does that feel like a comfortable place right now at this point in your life where you can kind of like lean on those different directions confidently? Uh, you know, as opposed to when you're 23 thinking that you can do everything maybe, but now actually it's sort of more of a tangible part of what you, what you do.
1: um, So when I moved here, I believe I was maybe 23. I think I turned 25 at the studio in Bearsville, New York, uh, at Bearsville, Woodstock, you know, Um, and Sally Grossman, you know, Albert Grossman's uh, Mm -hmm. widow, who was on the cover, Bob Dylan, bringing it all back home, bought, bought, bought me a bottle of champagne at the restaurant that night. And, you know, and, and it was something like, literally like, good luck kid, you know, <laughs> really like a, like a scene out of a movie, like, you know, it's going to go bad at that point, you know, yeah. like, Hey Ray, try some of this, you know? And, um, I mean just, and we had, um, John Sebastian from the love and spoonful dropped by the studio. And he, he met he someone, he was in there picking up something, his guitar or something, real estate, whatever it was. And somebody said, oh, you should meet these guys. They're, they're working with Charles and Don, who were the the heads of the label, mm-hmm. who had managed the Love and Spoonful and also run the label because they had the classic double dipping deal. And for anybody who might be listening or watching that doesn't know what that means, it's like in the music business, you're supposed to have a manager and a publisher and a label and a booking agent, and they're not supposed to be the same person. For so the good, Love and Spoonful has these guys classic guys that were like, yeah, we're the managers and we're the label and we're the booking agents. We'll take you to the top, kid. It's the original 360 deal. Like, you, yeah. know, you guys, you made $361, we get 360, you yeah. know. And, um, but so John Sebastian came in and he goes, shook my hand. I said, wow, I'm, I'm excited to meet you. He goes, he goes yeah, uh, you're working with Charles and Don. Keep your wallet firmly stapled to your ass. And then he walked out. <laughs> it was all very New York, you know, you know? and um, forget hippie, peace and love. Everybody was there, like escaping from New York City music business and like trying to hold on to what they got. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we met Rick Danko. Um, nice. Good old Canadian boy. We played ping pong with Alex Cooper. <laughs> really? He was in there making a, like a comeback record. This is at Bearsville. Yeah, all at Bearsville. So So we've got. Marshall Marshall Crenshaw came in one day and he kind of did the same like we he he mentioned the producer we were working with he goes oh you're working with Richard and he goes yeah well good luck with that everybody was like good luck with that you know and you're like really you're 24 years old going what what is that they walk out and you're kind of like wait wait a minute do do you mean and they're gone you know you so you have to kind of it's all these seeds of
0: so we're so, we're sort of jumping all over the place a bit, which is fine. But so Bearsville, yeah, you
1: guys steer steer the ship because I'm all over. I've that, been doing. That's this okay. So no,
0: it's it's good. Bearsville was it like a whole
1: complex of studios at some point? Bearsville was a complex of, of, of uh, quarters for the artists to stay in, oh. and then a and then a main studio with a, okay. with an A room, yeah, and then and the B room was more of a mixing suite with like a couple of. Isolation booths. Okay, and then they had a C room. I think that where they just had like a a p- mixing, editing, you know, tape yeah. machines and board and monitors.
0: And this was all sort of in a big barn just outside of Woodstock.
1: Yeah, they're separate buildings. The barn is was Levon Levon Helm's place. Yeah, and we like we lived there. That's where they they did the uh, his his shows. His um the Rambles, the Rambles. Yeah, and um, but at that time uh, it was just part of the facility and 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 we it would be part of the budget that would the band could live in Levon's barn because there was okay. a loft bedrooms upstairs and then around the main area where there was a kitchen and a bathroom and a huge rehearsal area. Yep. And so we lived there and rehearsed there for a week and then we went in the studio. Okay. And um and then the studio was like up the hill. And then there were other quarters. We we at one point a couple of members when they moved us out of the barn um, a couple of us lived in Richard Manuel's cabin. Really? So I'm a member of the band and he had a cabin and, and we stayed there Oh man! and uh, John Anderson from yes was there. So he was, and he had requested a white horse to ride into the studio <laughs> on the very, you know, prog rock you
0: can't and make that shit up, man.
1: And then when he busted into our session one day, we were told, don't try to talk to John. Don't, don't look at him. You know, don't like the, don't look at Bob thing, you know, yeah, don't, yeah. We'll talk talked to John and then he walked into our session one day we were like in the middle of tracking and he walked Damn, in and, 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 you know, and wanted to bum a, a cigarette. <laughs> and he said, and we said, you smoke, you know, John Anderson, you know, yeah. with that beautiful choir boy voice and like a white robe. And he said, I quit smoking long ago, but when I finish my vocals on a, on a record, I always have one cigarette. And so okay. he, he, he picked so up, and so we, he came to bum we said, it "We're going to give you a cigarette, but you have to stand here and tell us stories while you smoke it."
2: We <laughs> asked him about, you
1: know, "What about John Lennon? You know, Jimi Hendrix, Sid Barrett? What about those guys?" He goes, "Oh yeah, we used to go to the Middle Earth Club, and it was all very fabulous and psychedelic, and he smoked just to put it out, and he left." So, so that's that stuff is the real good memories. What were all those people doing there, Anderson? Wakeman, Bruford, and Howe were making a record because they couldn't use the Yes name, I guess, because yeah. Chris Squire wasn't involved or whatever. So they were in Bearsville as well. They, he was just finishing vocals and mixing that record with the producer, okay, whoever that was. And then um, Alice Cooper, they were mixing his record, and he was working with the guys, Mike Klink and the other guy that did Guns and Roses. So they were uh, the big guys, at the yeah, time. okay. And they were they were there, and this was there, and you know their thing. Was cutting tape to make it. It was like their version of Pro Tools was cutting like increments of tape out. They yeah. were doing that with Alice Cooper's record, and he was there to sing like syllables. Like we need two s's and a t, and so he'd go in and go, <laughs> and then and then he'd be hanging out. And Alice is a golfer, you know. And yeah, I know. And likes to have stuff to do, and he's not like going to be in there listening to mixes not that guy
0: that's such a crazy way to make records i i sort of came through like when i was when i was young i i taught bruce fairburn's kids guitar and uh bruce invited me down to the studio a few times so i got to see like the scorpions make records and stuff and they were wow. they were making they were doing guitar chords one note at a time
1: right like yeah the, so uh, very yeah like i know the, i know the feeling uh, and we actually we actually tracked live but but uh and then we punched in and fixed did that kind of inform
0: your philosophy at all about making music, like just seeing how you didn't want to do it in a way. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
1: totally. So, so we had fun, you know, we did all, we had all these fun, you know, shaggy dog, rock and roll stories on the road, making the record. And, and all those stories are less about, as you're hearing me tell the stories, the stories are more like, and we met this guy and we played ping pong with Alice Cooper. They came looking for somebody, you know, they had told us don't talk to Alice again, similar to John Anderson and said, and then someone came in and said, "Is anybody available to play ping pong with Alice Cooper?" And we were just like, "What?" <laughs> and so we said, "Yeah." So we played doubles with. Just um, don't look at him. Yeah, I think an a- his A and R guy was there, who was Bob Pfeiffer, who had been in an, uh, a, a like an obscure punk band called the Human Switchboard. And I told you know when I. I even, I had their 45. So I was like, you're Bob Pfeiffer from the human switchboard. He was like, he's like, yeah, you know, whatever, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So it was all that stuff, like all this, everything from Rick Danko, Richard Manuel, we go see big pink, the house where the band recorded, you know, and all this like beautiful stuff, John Sebastian, only John Sebastian's going, you know, watch your, watch your wallet kid, you know? And then, um, Marshall Marshall Crenshaw, yeah. Good luck with that, you know. And then, oh my
0: god, life lessons from jaded middle aged rockers. Yeah, (laughs) but then,
1: but then that the older, you know, and they were probably younger than me now. Then, you know, John Anderson and Alice Cooper, kind of pretty relaxed and happy with their place in the world. Like, yeah, whatever. I'm making a '80s record. Yeah, so you know, you got a cigarette. You know, we play ping pong. You know, let's go Uh, golfing. But but the music part was sort of. And we worked with Richard Goderer, who was a great producer and a great songwriter, rock and roll guy, you know, like old school Brill Building kind of guy, mm-hmm. and had worked with Marshall, Ch- Marshall Crenshaw, and The Go Go's, and Richard Hell and the Voidoids. So he was to me, he was as a record nerd, he was cool to me. It's like I like right. Marshall Crenshaw. I thought the Go Go's was record was pretty darn good as far as '80s yeah. pop records go. It's like yeah, it's good. And then Richard Hell and the Voidoids, man, classic punk rock. You know, one of the great. One of the one of the great ones. He was just a working guy, you know. So his job was to for us to have a to take us from college radio to the radio to mainstream, and so
0: so he was he was sort of assigned to you
1: from the label. He was hired, and we agreed. I mean, they okay. said we want we want. I don't think I don't know that we had a choice. Okay. Um, because we could have just made the record in Nashville, and it would have been basically the same thing, you know. Except it would have, yeah. You know, but whatever. The point is, the should have, could have, would have doesn't matter. I don't care about that. Yeah, we went to Bearsville, we made a record, and then the label just basically had a meeting said, We're not going to promote this record. Oh, shit. and um, and the things I learned that like the way we got in Spin Magazine and Village Voice and all that stuff was through doing our own stuff. And mm-hmm. then when our, our major label record came out, we got some press, and where the um radio guy worked the record, it got on the radio, but everywhere else, like it, there was no con- continuity to it, so there was no like massive like you know, management hand in hand with the label and the we're opening for so and so. And, you know, so I sort of got that. uh, And I remember right around that time I met Dan Baird from the Georgia satellites. Uh And he said, he said, you got to remember that they gave you the advance and they own the master. So you, you don't really have anything to do with it except for where they tell you, you need to go. Right. And and until you make them some money, your demands will go fall on deaf ears. And that's just the way it's always going to be. And he said, that's just the business of it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and when you're 23, 24, 25, you don't, you really, you hear that and you go, yeah, man. And then you, you just, you can't understand it. I mean, I never, I guess, I think someone who could understand that and who could just be at ease and, and and do, do great work under the circumstances is probably somebody that ends up being like a prince or something. Right. Or somebody who at least has a hit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we weren't those guys. We toured, we even did, we, we got the three months worth of t- tour support, which basically meant, and I'm not talking about a bus, I'm talking about a van and a trailer. Yeah. And we, we stretched that into a year of touring all over the country and the label did not care. They, oh, they were, they were unimpressed. Why are you still on the road? Yeah. <laughs> this is the '80s and the early '90s, so they they really weren't. Uh, we were supposed to go home and and write and do demos uh-huh. and try to have that hit. and And I understand that from the business perspective. I mean, yeah. that's what we were there to do. And uh, so anyway, yes, making a record that way and the business that way. I I didn't I didn't thrive in it. Now, ask me in another situation if I was the person who had a big success, and be like, yeah, well, you know, we we had that song, and it bought me blah blah blah. But anyway. But it was fun. We had fun and we broke up. Sure. We made a second record that they never released. And it took us a long time to get it on another label just for the legal legal stuff. Yeah. And this stuff is so kind of boring, but it does take you to where you are. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. What did having a publishing deal in those days actually look like? Like, were you on, were you on salary to, did you have to write a certain amount of songs or just in advance or how did it work?
1: It was called a custom publishing deal because we were a band with a record deal. So they wanted half our publishing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't like John Sebastian had back in the sixties. No, that had all been worked out, you know? And so yeah. we had lawyers and we had a good deal, you know? So right. we got an advance for, for half of our publishing,
2: Okay. very
1: fair advance for the time. And, um, and it didn't, and then I went down to EMI publishing. It was EMI. And I went down to EMI and gave them songs that I thought were country songs. And they, and it's almost like they, they weren't even allowed to listen to them. <laughs> were you so, obligated? Oh, yeah,
0: well, were you obligated to deliver like X amount of songs? No, this a month? had
1: this had nothing to do with, with Nashville. This oh, was okay. for our record deal out of New York City. Okay. And so, just like we said earlier, the two did the Twain did not meet yet. Right. Yeah. So we just we just had our songs that, that were a, a agreed upon for the for the record, and those yeah. were part of our deal. Okay. And so then we 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 presented more songs for the second record, and once that got worked out, we made the second record.
0: Where'd you do the second record?
1: We did it here in Nashville. And that may have been you know a, a, maybe a, a brilliant manager would have said, no no, no if they're going to do the record here, that means they're not going to put it out. I don't know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, but they didn't put it out, and so by the time we got it put out on an indie label and got it took us two and a half years to get dropped. You know. So right. uh, or something like that, a long time. And especially yeah. at that in your twenties, it just feels like it's a hundred oh, years and you're just miserable. And but that was really just the age because now I understand that it was just, you know, working with a big company. EMI was the biggest record company in the world at that time. And try to get them to answer our question, Will you please drop us? <laughs> took a, a long, you know, a long time. The legal legal affairs department, the floor of offices on Sixth oh Avenue, New York God. was just like, you know, a codophone message from who? No. Uh, no. And so it took a while. And meanwhile, uh, I was, I, I formed sort of a side project called the biscuits. Yeah. And, um, and we got, and then the Bushman broke up and uh, I quit and the, and the biscuits got signed to John Prine's label. Oh boy. Uh-huh. Uh, that record's about to be reissued on vinyl. Oh, cool. That's part of the 40th anniversary of Oh boy <laughs> records. So had, that's you, fun. had
0: you run into Prine at that
1: point? Like, did you
0: know those guys at all?
1: I had, I had gone to see shows mm-hmm. since I was, 14 years old, but, um, no, I met him during that time.
2: Okay.
1: And, um, and we did a lot of negotiating over a very small deal with Albinetta and Dan Einstein. So it was, it was another just classic, like some of these people were still around that were just classic record business people Yeah, from like right out of a book, you know, you know, they're telling you these stories <laughs> and you're like, can we just talk about our split on publishing? And they're, like, let me tell you another story by Bob Dylan, John Prying, Chris <laughs> Christopherson and Leonard Cohen, New York, 1971. And you're like, well, this is great, but you know, so yeah. it was great. It was great. And, and, um, and that was short lived. You have to understand, I'll go, I'll go back again and say I'd been in a band since I was 12. Right. And, and never, and that's what I, that was my life's goal was to be in a band starting when I was 11. And so from 12 on, I was like playing gigs wherever I could play them. And Living the dream. Once, yeah. Once I figured out at about 16 that it was actually the writing your own songs that was the ticket. Mm-hmm. So and then I was like, well, I've got songs. I've been writing them. And so we started a band, and and then that ended up over the the next two or three years to become the Bushman, which put out our first record. When I was like nineteen. Right. So from twelve to nineteen, I was sort of getting ready to do what I do still, which is so make records and write songs. And, and you mentioned
0: that you consider yourself really more than anything else a songwriter right now. Can you just tell me about how that started for you? Like what made you want to start writing songs and maybe some of your first experiences? I, were you actually 12, 13 when you started doing that?
1: Probably 13, yeah. Well, yeah, no, actually 12, yeah. So You're what right. were you I, listening
0: to? Like what was mostly influencing your, your brain at, musically when you were a 12-year-old kid starting to play guitar?
1: I'll tell you four records. Okay, I'll tell you five records. And, and so three of them are what you would expect in a way, a kid from America, 1976, kiss alive, Aerosmith rocks or toys in the attic interchangeable. Yeah. Um, and then Nazareth hair of the dog. Ah, nice, nice choice. Really, really just kind of horrible, but also (laughs) kind of great, you know? And, um, the monstrous thing on the cover. And now you're messing with the son of a bitch and the crazy yeah. cover. Love hurts. You know, sure. That's the first time I heard love hurts. That's what I thought love hurts was. Now I play with Amy Lou Harris. Um, so, and, but let me add to that. Springsteen's first three records. Yeah. Bob Dylan desire mm-hmm. and John Prime. So those things were equal to me.
0: Specifically desire because of the lyrics or because that came out when you were a kid.
1: But, uh, uh, Christmas, 1975, I, I received a copy of born to run and desire under the nice. Christmas tree from Santa Claus. All
0: right. Thanks. Thank Santa. you, Santa
1: Claus. And that so, so to me, you know, rock and roll all night and walk this way and they are great songs. I, I'm not going to argue all day on that, but they were the same as hello in there and right. hurricane or, you know, uh, um, Isis by Bob Dylan. And I mean, I knew the other greatest hits from the radio and my sister's record collection. She had, she had the great sort of, you know, Bob Dylan's greatest hits, Chicago's greatest hits, Seals and Crofts, Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, so far, Joni Mitchell, Hissing of Summer Lawns. So I heard all that stuff and the Beatles, the the blue double album and the red double album. Yeah. Um, And then the, you know, oldies radio, you could hear the birds, Paul Revere, the Raiders, Motown Stacks, and uh, a great radio station in my hometown that was playing Springsteen's first three records. So I got to see Springsteen on my 12th birthday. And, in, and the day in, I got a guitar. In Mobile? Yeah, he played two nights because he was on the radio there. And the early, the front end of, of, of Born to Run, WABB and Mobile was playing them every day before a lot of other stations, maybe WLIR in New York and, you know, Rodney Bingenheimer or whatever. But Mobile. And so he played two nights in a 1,000 seat theater. It was $4.50. So I got a guitar. Happy birthday. Here's your guitar. We're going to d- drop you off at the theater to see Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band do the, the Born to Run era show where basically they do the first three albums all the way through for three right. and a half hours. Amazing! It tells all the stories. Yeah. I, I know Rosie's here somewhere. Jump out in the crowd, look for Rosalita. You know, so <laughs> that's my, that's my, that's not my first show but it really is. That's a, it's the first show I went to as a guitar owner. Right. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. So, it's a, I was, it, it, so six months later, I'm playing a gig in a skating rink with my band.
0: Okay. So how were you learning to play guitar?
1: I was self-taught. I had, I had taken piano lessons and I'd played violin in the fifth grade and I was playing an alto saxophone in the school band. So I was musical, mm-hmm. but I wanted to play the guitar and I didn't want lessons because lessons meant like, you know, prayer Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't want that. I want to learn how to play rock and roll all night. And I want to and and you know the Springsteen thing the puzzle because uh, 70s rock, you know, learning how to play um, taking care of business and uh Skynyard songs and Aerosmith songs and Kiss songs were Ted Nugent songs were doable. They made yep. sense to that not only the of the ease, but of the understanding of a, a adolescent male brain Sure. Whereas yeah, Springsteen songs were coming from this other's place informed by RB where the guitar is not the guitar player's like in the background, like you know, playing, you know, the early Springsteen, like the guitar is like it's hardly there. It's there, but it's it's there in like a Van Morrison R and B. Yeah. And so that's your brain the kid who's a twelve in nineteen seventy-six is just going, Where's the guitar? So right. I was trying to I loved those records. I mean, I listened, I wore those records out. And um, so I do think that so coming so over the years, the smoke metaphorically cleared and there was just the songs.
2: Right. And also
1: yeah. I met I met a guy who was from Atlanta and I started a band with him when I was 16. And and he said, the bands in Atlanta play their own songs. And, and he said, Do you have any songs? And I said, Yeah. And I played him some songs. And um, then he so we started a band with the premise that we were going to put records out, but we never did. What happened was the, the market for live bands was if you want to, you know, play the clubs, you have to play covers. And so we right. snuck in with our half originals and half covers yeah, and it yeah. sort of sounded like the Elvis Costello song sounded like our song and the clash song sounded like our song. Yeah. You can and, get away with that shit. Or, or, or vice. Our songs sounded like theirs. Excuse me. But so my dream, and also we, when I was 18, we opened for REM on the last date of their tour, before they made Murmur. cool. And so that was when that was sort of like, you know, you read those books that say we saw the Ramones and so we formed the sex pistols or we saw, you know, the Ramones and we formed the clash or we, you know, so REM was our, you know, they looked like us, they were Southern guys. They weren't some guys from new CBGB's or LA or England. And they had a crummy van that didn't look any better than my car. Peter Buck's amp was blown up, he had to borrow mine and we got to talk to him. and they were just guys. So all of a sudden they became human, the face of this band who I'd read about in Rolling Stone and bought the Chronic Town EP and bought Radio Free Europe 45 and they were heroic and they were great too. So I had to quit my band because at that point my friend who had turned me on to playing original music was fully invested. He was older, he was like Mm -hmm. 24 and I was like 18 so he was invested in the sound system and and he had to pay rent. I still live with my parents. Right. So I feel bad about it now. So I just quit the band. I was, we're never going to make a record. We're just going to be a cover band in the deep south. And, and yeah. so I quit and I formed a band with other guys, which this was the Bushmen. And we okay. so we put a record out within a year of our All own. Right. And so that was, you know, then, then I was really living the dream. Like, okay, now we dialed it in. We've got our own songs. People can hear them on the radio and they come and request our songs at our gig.
0: And were you, were you the sole writer for that band?
1: No, I had a writing, I had a writing partner named Sam Baylor who died in 2015. And, um, uh, and, and he was a good foil for me. I tended to sort of over clever stuff and he was a real minimalist guy. He was great. And he just had lifestyle got the better of it. And, um, yeah, yeah. But we had another guy in the band, the bass player. who also was a great harmonica player. And he, um, and he was like a real, he was a little older. So he was a real like psychedelic, like he loved you know, Jefferson Airplane like with Yorma and, you know, uh, Frank Zappa. And he was like a, that guy. And so he was always trying to insert that into our band. So we had sort of a mix of these two guys that wanted to write kind of great, good pop music because we loved R.E.M. and we loved the Smiths and we loved mm-hmm. the Birds and the Beatles, and the Kinks and the Who and all that stuff. And so, and that was the time. So Arian had given us permission to be Southern Americans right? and do our own music. And at that time, even if you just played like beautiful birdsy jangle, you were kind of punk rock because you were playing your own songs. You weren't playing Night Ranger covers. Right.
0: <laughs> so what was your approach to writing then? Like uh, In the early days, were you like a lyrics guy first? Or like it seems like your lyrics for you as a writer that I've noticed have always been like, front and center. And like, obviously it's something that you work on a lot. Was that
1: always the case? I grew up in a house full with books pile high to the ceiling. My mother is an Eng- was an English teacher and a French teacher. And so she had, I grew up with like the word, the written word was like sacred. My mother read, you know, Proust in French and she read Faulkner in French, you know, so she, my mother's a real, Intellectual, you know, and but also like a soulful lady who cooks, you know, turnip greens and cornbread. But so really cool, you know. Um, so I had, you know, the same time I got Born to Run and Desire for Christmas, I got, you know, Being There by Jersey Kaczynski for Christmas. You know, I got good books. And so I was interested in words. And that's why people like Dylan and Prine were interesting to me. R.E.M. was interesting just because it sounded so good and it worked. I don't know what their words were back then. Nobody knows.
0: Yeah, they were cryptic, but but still poetic in their own
1: way. Absolutely. It probably Which... in a huge way because you couldn't understand, but you felt something. So songwriting was like just getting inspired and jamming with the band and then working it out Yeah, and then going home, writing lyrics, finally figuring out what you're going to say okay. and writing it. Now it's a little bit more like what do I want to say yeah. rather than what pops into my head. Now, sometimes things pop into your head that you happen to want to say or you get interested in or you hear something or you write something down. So um, and one of the reasons that it's gotten a big change for me was I, work, I do songwriting with soldiers. But we can talk about that because I'm taking someone else's story and making it into a song right there on the spot. And it's such good training for me as a 50 something year old man after a Uh, lifetime of writing songs to hear someone else's story come out of their mouth, not something you read in the, on Twitter and the New York times or in a book. Um, It's like, this is a story that's being shared with me and I'm going to try to honor it and work it out with this person in this short period of time. And it's therapeutic for someone who has post-traumatic stress. Who's Sure.
2: Of
0: course it is.
1: Post-traumatic stress disorder to post-traumatic growth, um, to try to, grow through the trauma. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but, or to grow despite the trauma or, but anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's been wonderful thing for me too. So, so things have changed over the years, but I've been writing the whole time. And, um, you know, I used to feel like I, I needed to write to produce songs. Now I know I need to write just to live just to get it out. And it's fun. So what about some of the stuff that clearly
0: influences you, like maybe in more modern years? I don't know. But like, you know, as far as the, your latest record, Spring Break, it's like, mm. you know, it's a solo guitar record, basically, or so- yeah. songs, but like perform solo. And, you know, clearly yeah. some of the influences are, you know, I would guess like Mississippi John Heard and Lightning Hopkins and stuff like that. Were those right. people influencing you early on as well? Or did you get into that stuff way
1: later? I always read the liner notes of records. That's what J.J. Cale always referred to himself. He said, "I'm a, I'm a fine, I'm in the fine print." <laughs> so he said, "Do you wish you were at Clapton?" And he had cut your songs. He goes, "No, no, no. I, 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 I like to play and sit around the house. Let him be the famous guy. I'm in the fine yeah. print." So yeah. I always read the fine print. Okay. And so I remember when I had the Almond Brothers at Fillmore East, which is another pivotal record for me as a kid because it was, yeah. uh, it, it was popular. So you you didn't feel like you were being a weirdo before I decided to consciously become a weirdo, and that was because of REM. But if I read you read the liner notes, you realize that um States for a blues was written by Blind Willie McTell. Well, that's a fascinating name. Where who's he? So I'll go buy a blind Willie McTell record in the cutout bin, mm-hmm. and it sounds like it's coming from Mars. Now it yep. sounds like it sounds right to me. Then it was like, what? I just put taken off, you know, Kiss Alive and put on Blind Willing (laughs) to Tell. That's a leap. Yeah. (laughs) And so, uh, and then on a T-Bone Walker, Stormy Monday Blues, you know, you put that on, it's like, well, this is, this sounds like some old tinny. And it was, you know, but it it actually wasn't as far back as I thought as it felt like then. Right. Now I'm farther away from that moment in the late seventies than the Allman Brothers were from T-Bone Walker. Anyway, so I but I did explore it and then again my my wonderful mother realized that and she bought me Robert Johnson King of the Delta Blues Singers volume 1 and 2 one Christmas. Okay. And again it still sounded like it was coming from Mars, but I had heard it and listened to it and I owned the records. Yeah. And still do this scratchy old Robert Johnson records that I still have, but over time I began to understand that you know what the Rolling Stones were trying to do on some of their best stuff was imitate that. And so, and I love those records, you know, uh, let, let it bleed, sticky fingers, XL on main street. Yeah. Um, all the good ones. And that's kind of stuff that I started to get into. If, if, ironically, right. As my band got signed to a late eighties record deal to the label that had Wilson Phillips and vanilla ice and the teenage mutant <laughs> Ninja turtles soundtrack.
2: <laughs>
1: and, but also Daryl Scott was signed to, if, to a pop deal. Oh, in interesting. The same. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and also, uh, Technotronic who I actually kind of liked, I thought they were, no, not Techno, excuse me. What was that band called? Will, uh, Jesus Jones. Remember them? Right here, I, right I now. I remember the
0: name, but I, I don't, I don't know their music at all. Yeah, they were
1: good. They wrote good pop songs and, they, and but it was like English and sort of modern yeah. sounding, you know, and they had a couple okay. of hits, but anyway, but so just as I got signed, I really discovered, um, you know, Exile on Main Street, John Hyatt's Bring the Family Sure. Ry Get Rhythm Record. Yeah. And I bought a copy of Boomer's Story for a dollar in Cutout Bin.
0: That's my favorite. And
1: yeah, I mean, come on. And then the band, the the uh, I bought music from Big Pink at a, at a thrift store. And and so my life changed, but my band was in this like I was my career was stuck in the late 80s, and even though at that time all, a lot of half of that music half of that music I mentioned was being put out at that time. I got Keith Richards solo record Talk is Cheap. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Ry get Rhythm, which is not his best record, but still, it's Ry it's,
0: it's a pretty damn good record, actually.
1: Yeah, it's got Thirteen Question Method, the Chuck yeah. Berry. It's got uh, um, the uh, I can tell by the way you smell. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and there's some
0: great moments with Flacco on there too.
1: Yeah, and, and Keltner, you know. So yeah, so yeah, so yeah, my, my I became, um, and I'd always been aware of of roots rock. Remember Roots Rock? You know, Los Lobos, Dwight Yoakam, right? Um, yeah. Um, all those bands are the blasters, and even even X was sort of like almost in there, sort of uh, slash records from LA, right? And um, so that stuff was like you could be cool and have your um Gang of Four record and your REM record and your Clash record. And yeah, it was sort of. It's weird
0: to think of of REM and the blasters in the same sentence, but yeah, like they're definitely the same era exactly, and they probably cross yeah. paths all the time.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I went to see. REM, you know, and then I went to see, uh, gang of four, like, I mean, we opened for REM and then like two months later I went to see gang of four, you know, all it was the same. It's like, this is the new stuff. This is my music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But then the root stuff, you know, I think, um, like watching, um, Nick Lowe, who's another huge, you know, person I listened to as a new waver. And yeah. then now I listen to him as a, a guy wow. who wants to be as cool as him, you know?
0: Yeah, man. That, his, his recent records are incredible. Love that guy. Yeah,
1: and and I know that he he had. I've heard him talk about it. That he said I was you know I was an artist du jour at one point. I was the producer du jour at one point. And we'd always go out to these expensive record company funded lunches and get drunk and and laugh at who had just turned forty and they're out they're on their way out. And he said one morning I woke up and my hair was white and I, bags under my eyes and I had a hangover and I was like I'm ten years ago that guy. What am I gonna do? <laughs> Yeah. And then he got the he got the you know bodyguard check for what's so funny about peace, love and understanding. And he, he could relax a little bit. Right. And he said, What can I do and have my dignity? And he figured it out. You know, you know it's that he sure, he sure Sam Cooke meets Chet Baker, but still a little bit rock and roll, like just enough of that rock and roll and and soul and 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 he says he plays his songs over and over again until they feel like he's singing a cover. And so I took that to heart, you know, although I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little less, um, I'm a lot more sort of like run from thing to thing, ADD. And part of that is just my work life.
0: Right. Yeah. Is that ever something that you
1: struggle with?
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But like as far as being a sideman for somebody and then and then doing your own thing and
2: then
1: at one point I was I, I was told specifically by a, a record company that they weren't going to even listen to my record cause they don't put out records by side man. And, um, <laughs> and I said, well, can you just listen to it? You know, <laughs> yeah, like, cause I mean, I play more, for a sec. I play more, uh, shows of my own than I do with the artists I work with. And, yeah. and I play more shows than they do on my own. So, I'll, right. you know, so that's part of the, see, I've been on the road except for the last year, 200 days a year since, since the 80. Wow. So, um, and, and and the great lesson of the last year just to jump into the present is that oh I and because because pandemic happened at the time when I had a publishing catalog that would help me make a living and a fan base small but loyal that would allow me to do a Patreon yeah. that, that is that is a fun back and forth and yet mm-hmm. just another reason to create music yeah, and so Back to the original question of spring break, the influences. Yeah, I love. I've grown to love the 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 single person, whether it's Joan Baez doing Silver Dagger or, you know, Nick Drake. Of course, I don't sound anything like him, but I love Pink Moon. Yeah, and I love you know Cello Song, River Man, all the all this stuff. Um, I love Richard Thompson when he plays solo, or which is with, just with uh, Annie Thompson. I love that best. Um, and I love uh, the mid '60s Mississippi John Hurt Vanguard record, uh, Mississippi yeah. John Hurt today. I love uh, uh, Skip James today, and I love those even better than the, the, their original recordings because yeah. they're a little more relaxed. They're well, yeah, and they're, and they're gosh, it's it sounds amazing, and you're sitting there in the room with them, and you can hear their fingers on the strings and hear their you know yep. mouth sounds and uh, forced into isolation in you know, spring 2020, I knew that I'd been playing at least say 50 solo shows a year for the last 30 years. Yeah. Why not do it? I had made a solo acoustic live record that never was in distribution. It was just sort of like a, a release I did. Okay. Without any kind of distribution. I just did it myself and sort of funded it and put it out there. And, um, but I hadn't done one where it was in the studio. So I I did, you know, I didn't want to make it just a blues record or just a folk, you know, it was based on the songs because again, I'm a songwriter and I had a batch of songs that I had written with other artists that I had never put out myself or a couple. I always wanted to do a little different version solo. And then new songs came. So before I knew it, I had 15 songs and then I pared it down to 14 and that's how that record came out. And I was, uh, the confidence to do a, to a solo acoustic record because I had done a live one that way. I'd played that many shows, and it was 2020. Sure. It was like, well, what else? Are I'm going to have something out there. I, <laughs> you know, what else are you going to do? And the you know the budget's right. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you make
0: it at home? I did. Was it just as simple as sticking a mic, couple of mics up, and sitting down? Yeah, for I did a the few guitar and... mono,
1: mono with a Neumann KM84, KM184, KM and a, an SM7, and um. There's maybe one harmonica overdub because the harmonica end of the note sort of goes over the where the vocal starts and I knew what mm-hmm. I, I wanted it to be there. Right. So I overdubbed the harp. And uh and there's one song that I had previously recorded, but remotely as well, like at, at my parents' old house at uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama. And um, and it had a guitar overdub, like a, a solo overdub. So everything else has just happened in real time live. And yep. there's two songs where one is a harmonica overdub and one has a guitar. But, um, you know, it, there wasn't a rule for that, but I wanted to see what it sounded like if I did the whole song by myself. Start to finish. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And was
0: it quick or did you stretch it out over yeah. weeks, just like here and here and there? Or you it, was just a, did it all in? a couple a of
1: weeks. I mean, once I, you know, some of the songs I'd written and uh, like, I, like there's a song called Rocket Fuel that it does a solo mandolin. And I wrote that with Todd Snyder. It came out on on his record in 1997, and I always uh, wanted to do a version of it. And so I just one day I tried it on guitar, tried it on different things. Well, really only two things: guitar and mandolin.
2: Yeah. And I
1: decided the mandolin worked, and then I and then I I thought, well, then I guess I should make sure I record it right. And I listened back to what I had done, and I was like, oh, well, there it is, you know. So that yeah. was it. And so, yeah, then I moved on to another song. So some days I would do four or five songs. So it took about, a, probably took about a week. And then I mixed it and I would send, I'm, I'm not a mixer. So I would send my mixes, but th- I figured if I can mix a record, it'll be this one, you know, right. guitar, <laughs> vocal. And I'm not, I, I think I did okay. Uh, somebody else could have done it a lot better. But again, it was, it was spring 2020, the budget being what it was. So I, I sent my, I'd send a mix to, my mastering engineer, and he he'd listen to it and he'd respond and say it was always the vocals too loud, you oh, know, yeah. or just too loud in like a, a tonal way as well. Like you're not hearing that massive hump at lower mid range, and I was like, I'm not hearing it, but I'm w- I, so I would just do it, like learning how your monitors sound. Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: Do you have a studio set up or is that not something I that's yeah. interested to you? Okay.
1: Oh, I didn't know I have a studio. Yeah, I've, I've made. In fact, I'm, I'm I recorded. Um, Steve Pulse's uh, Shine On record in my backyard, and I was a oh, Okay, things. I mean, I've done a whole. I record, recorded the drums, everything. So I've recorded bits and pieces of my records since at home since about two thousand five.
0: Okay, tell me about recording. Um, I like it down here. That that record came out what like just a year and a half ago or something. Yeah, it um, came out in
1: twenty nineteen. Yeah.
0: So that's more of a band, or it is a band record. Uh, is that so? Is that Brian Owings and yeah. Okay. Chris I know Donahue. Brian a little bit. Chris Donahue on bass. Okay. And just the three of you basically. And then, and then yeah, a we worked at, uh,
1: this, there's a wonderful studio Blackbird here, you know? Yeah. And, um, they do the Blackbird Academy. So they have students. Mark Rubel. Right. Mark Rubel. Yeah. So, so, um, so I did a Blackbird Academy and uh, you know, you, you know, the deal you, mm-hmm. you track for two days and then you have an overdub day or two and then, and then you walk away with your hard drive full of the music so we recorded we tracked for two days we did all the songs except for one because I didn't I hadn't written it yet and um and then I, I did some overdubs had some friends come sing I played mm-hmm. you know acoustic guitar and tambourines and shakers and sang some harmonies and did some overdubs and and then I took it home and finished it and uh one song is which is called Alabama which is a story song about the 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 murder of Michael Donald, uh, which is known as the last known lynching in America in 1981 in my hometown. And uh, so I wrote that song after we finished recording and I just recorded that at home. And then Brian came over and played drums here. So I did that. And that's a good way for me to make a record like that because the decisions are sort of like I hired a great rhythm section and that I play with a lot. We all play with Emmy Lou and, um, and we play in the Red Dirt Boys. So, then I um, was able to just take those tracks and the only thing I had to fix was me really, you know, and a lot of it was okay. You know, like a lot of those vocals are just the vocals from the floor and yeah, that's some step yeah. like 40 feet away from the drums mm-hmm. and some bleed, some of the songs, as, as you, know, you know, it's sometimes, sometimes the bleed is your friend, sometimes it's not.
2: Yeah.
1: It's phasey or whatever. So, so we, I just did that. It was pretty simple. Like it was done pretty quickly and I handed it over to Brad Jones to mix yeah. And um and it was done. You know, I had right on. a wonderful experience.
0: The guitar sounds are awesome on that record. anytime I've seen footage of you playing and stuff or seen you play with Emmy Lou or whatever, you've always got it seems like different guitars. Like do you have favorites that you've used forever or you've got
1: quite a few kicking around probably and I have quite a few. I had a <laughs> I had a Telecaster, seventies telecaster when I was a kid and it and it was stolen when I was about twenty. And so then I, I bought a one of the early reissue Stratocasters and, and then, that, and then I ended up selling it because I had something else I was playing more and I needed, you know, I needed to buy strings and cables. So I sold my Strat. Yeah. was, you know, that kind of guy in a band in his early twenties broke. Like I need right. to have my amp service. I need strings and cables. Here's the Strat. has got to go. <laughs> strat has got to go for $300. So, um, so then I bought another. My wife gave me a seafoam green reissue strat for our wedding present. Nice. Um, and, and then it was stolen on one of the last Will and the Bushman shows. Oh. So we were, it was terrible. Yeah. You know, we were out playing just to pay off our manager and pay off our legal bills, just to get out of our deal and break up so we could be done. Yeah. We were just getting all the time <laughs> just sad. to be pat, miserable, you know, <laughs> drinking a lot. Um, and I was playing in, uh, in Mississippi and walked off the stage, walked down these three steps to the little backstage of a club, got my cases, went back on the stage, and they were, my guitars were gone. Oh, no. Brutal. The cases and empty cases. So They took them out of the case? No, no. They were on the stage. Oh, oh I see. Okay. Cases were in my hand empty. Ugh, brutal. I went to get the case to, to pack up. And um, so I was like, I had to play the next night in Birmingham. So I was like, well, so a friend in Tuscaloosa loaned me a guitar and then I had to buy a guitar. So that's when I really started to accumulate guitars because I couldn't afford to buy a guitar that I wanted. So I'd settle for, I bought a GNL guitar and, and I didn't like it, but I used it. Mm-hmm. I bought something and I bought an Aria pro two Les Paul copy, which I still have, which is awesome. <laughs> nice. It's a great, great guitar. And yeah. um, so I used that for years Kim Ritchie loaned me this Gretsch she had for years. Yeah. And that started to get get it built back up. So um with Emmy Lou, I always take out a telecaster. I have it's it's not a fender, it's a custom made guitar by Charles Whitfield. So it's like a 50s telly, really nice. It weighs about four pounds. It's a fantastic guitar. And I have a, a that I have a Gretsch now, like, but it's a nineties Japanese Gretsch, Tennessee, Tennessee Rose. It's a great guitar too. Like you could throw it against the wall and it's being tuned and um, nice. with, with a big speech. Great. Yeah. And I've got the Aria Les Paul, but I've got like a 1960 melody maker that has a P90 that fits in it. So it's like a four Les Paul jr. With a 59 Gibson neck. I've got my, you know, my forties Gibson's now I've got a LG three, I've got a, a, a J 45. That's, that's having a neck reset right now. Behind mm-hmm. is a hundred year old washburn. I've got a thirties nice. national. Um, I've got, Two great Tisco's with gold foil pickups. I've got Harmony Rocket from the mid sixties. I like that uh, Harmony Bobcat. Um, an Alamo Fiesta, which was my first guitar, but I've got a, another one, which is like a weird hollow guitar made in Texas, but it's a weird little space age, like Billy Gibbons looking space guitar. <laughs> yeah. um,
0: so when you go to to say make a record at, at Blackbird of your own stuff, how do you pick which which axis you're gonna use for that? Record. for
1: most of that i used a 66 fender jaguar that i had at the time because it was okay. the, the latest guitar and i just used it because it, it, it allowed the um the the bottom end of the whole record to be in the bass and the, and the drums yeah and the jag could just sit on top and it was a beautiful 66 and i had flat wounds on it so it had this attack and then this and then decay was sort of where all the body was yeah and i was using a princeton reverb from the 70s so it had this kind of like mushy low end anyway. Mm-hmm. Um and so so it, it like on, on songs on there like uh like I like like I like it down here and saltwater and sand, you really hear that, that Jaguar. And I ended up selling that guitar to buy an ES three thirty five, but um which I okay. think I like. So it's gone now. I have a I have a parts jazz master that does the same role. It's, I realized it was just just as good and it was yeah. you know three thousand dollars cheaper. So I got <laughs> guitars a come and go, man. Yeah. Right. And, but I still got, I've still got, I've ended up getting my Fiesta Red Strat back that I bought when I was 18. So I've got that. Cool. And that's what I have from. So really it, it all comes back around to a Telecaster and a Gretsch. And I've started using a Strat again, but more for like, like Jerry Garcia, 1972 kind of sounds, Okay. like the bridge pickup and reverb yeah. on it. Um, Almost like you would use it like it's like a Telecaster, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know, the difference that, that, yeah, Slightly higher peak of a Strat that, than a Tele has that more mid-range peak. And, anyway. uh, so, but I, I, probably my favorite sounding use pick it up is those gold foil pickups.
0: I like those a lot.
1: So I'm thinking about taking some of those out and putting them in a Strat body, just have something that's a little more stage worthy than right. my favorite sounding Tysco. The headstock's like two feet long <laughs> and it has three <laughs> of those gold foils.
0: Yeah. You know, you can get it
1: going in the studio. But it takes a while. If you play in an open tuning live and play just play slide on it it's fine. But yeah. the headstock's so big. I mean it it's already got cracks in it cuz if you just, you know, leave it sitting for 2 hours it gets a crack. And the headstock's 2 feet long. Right. Which is just wrong. It is wrong. <laughs> but but, but they're and, cool. you know what?
0: They look cool. The way
1: it the way it sounds is not just the pickups. We all know that, right? It's yeah. the whole thing. So that headstock has something to do with it. Totally. So maybe I'll just leave it alone. <laughs> you brought up the
0: sideman thing and, and, you know, that's like yeah. a whole other element of what you do. Can you tell me a bit about how that started for you? Like what, what your first side person gigs were and, and, uh, how that's evolved over the years. And, you know, now oh, yeah. of course you play with Amy Lou Harris now, and I don't know how long you've played with her for. It's probably been at least 10 years or something, right?
1: Uh, it's, it's coming into its 10th year. Yeah. Um, so I played in, I basically fronted my own bands or, or, or had sort of democratic bands with two or three singers, kind of like, you know, bar bands, you know, NRBQ, the Beatles (laughs) from age 12 to about 30. And then I tried to have a solo career, but, but I, but I just needed to, I got offered the job to play with Todd Snyder.
0: Okay. Like out of the blue or?
1: Uh, I just got a call there. He was, he had made his first record and Eddie Shaver was the main guitar player, Billy Joe Shaver's late great son. And Doug Lancio had played some on there too. And, um, but, but, uh, Eddie was playing with Shaver with Billy Joe. Yeah. Doug Lancio was playing with Nancy Griffith. And so they were like, well, we can't go on the tour. So I got the call. Um, I was just sort of a known entity at that point. There was a guy who could play the guitar, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, so they said, would you be interested in, you know, meeting up with Todd? And so I learned the first record. I liked it a lot and um, felt like it's something I could do. It's my wheelhouse, you know? Yeah. It's like,
0: it's got a lot of like that stonesy kind of guitar stuff.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Open G and drop D and yeah. twang and slide and you know, all that stuff, Stonesy stuff. Yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, I could, this will be fun. And I needed a job. And so, um, I didn't know I needed a job until I was offered a job. And I was like, oh, I guess I should do this. Right. So went to Memphis and, and auditioned, but there was nobody else there to audition. It was just Todd and his rhythm section and me. We played through the whole album and they were, we never really stopped. We just played, we like, had yeah, the next song is this. And we played it and they were like, all right, well the next song is this. Did you know this stuff really well? Like had you, had you worked on it enough? I had, to feel... I had worked it up. Yeah. Okay. And they really, yeah. see, they really knew it. They were a unit. So all I had to do was just sit there and play lead guitar. Yeah. And, some intros and it felt my memory of it may be slightly memoirized. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. This was 30 years ago, but it felt like there was no like, okay, hold on, man. Now you got to, you know, this, this is how it goes, man. You know, it was more than we're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. Next song. You know? Mm-hmm. And then we were, we did a couple of covers like Jerry Jeff Walker songs and I just kind of knew how they went in my head. Yeah. I'd never played them, but we played them. And then, um, and then, and I said, so um, who else is auditioning? And they were like, you're it, <laughs>
2: you're
1: it, man. And I was like, okay. Guess and I got the gig. So what, so I guess I'm going to go, you know, go stay at the Holiday Inn in Mid- Midtown Memphis and go back to Nashville and I'll wait to hear about dates. And they're like, no, we're playing, a, we're playing down the street. Let's just move our gear down the street. And so we had a gig. <laughs> really? And I'm like, So I played with Todd from then, from late 94 to summer of 98. So, you know, really four years.
0: That's a, that's a, big window of time
1: yeah and so that's what i did you know that's what i did during that time i didn't do much else there was no time yeah um
0: he was busy then like he was touring
1: oh yeah, yeah dates a year yeah constantly yeah, we, we okay just, on the road and then he got dropped and, and and you know the band went home and then i was looking for work i had, I had a, a small child at home and a wife at home and
2: mm-hmm.
1: i needed a, I, I couldn't take a break you know so I, I found other gigs and pretty soon like a year and a half. From I had a period where it was, and I made my first solo record during okay. that time when I was just playing with anybody who would ask me. So I played all kind of you know, fifty dollar sessions and twenty dollar Nashville gigs and little tours. I played with, but with some good people. I played with Kim Ritchie. I played mm-hmm. with Matthew Ryan. I played with Josh Rouse. I played with Garrison Starr. And so there were those people are really good. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I and, know Kim. And, and she's great. And um, so I got to do that stuff and play on records, learn, learn how to be a session player, made my first solo record, and then Rodney Crowell called.
0: Okay, just, again, just out of the blue, you didn't know him?
1: Uh, my, no, I didn't know him, and my friend who had been Todd Snyder's uh, front of house soundman, man, Seamus Bacon, had um, become Rodney's soundman and tour manager, and one day I got a call and Seamus said, uh, Stuart Smith is joining the Eagles. I said, well, good for Stuart, I guess, you know? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, man, you, you, you'd interested in maybe talking to Rodney about playing? And I said, okay, you know? And uh, about a week later, Rodney Crowell called me and I was like, wow, I'm talking on the phone with Rodney Crowell because he was somebody mm-hmm. who I certainly admired and bought yep. his records. And and he said, you know, you know Rodney, you know, man, I think I might come over to your house uh, maybe a couple of days and maybe play through some songs. Maybe you play some guitar for me. And I was like, Okay, so he came over and uh, we played through a few songs and he said, "Well, you seem like you're not going to fuck it up too bad." in the punch. <laughs> yeah, and so I, so I the next 7 years I'll play with Rodney. Wow, that's but a I long did, But I also too. made Yeah, but I made like four records during that time. And one of the, the biggest things that happened out of that was number 1, I got to play with Rodney. Number 2, I got to be around Rodney. Number 3, I got to sing harmonies with Rodney. Awesome. Number four, I got to work up new songs on stage with Rodney. I got to play on Rodney Records. Yep. So that's five massive things that you couldn't pay enough money to learn that.
0: What are some of the things that you learn from a guy like that, like as far as writing or just living in general?
1: Well, let me add the sixth thing. So those five things, the sixth is this. At one point he said, you know, I'm not really, I'm not, you know, a big country star anymore. I can't really afford to pay you like pro- professional sideman pay. He said, how about you open shows? And if there's a fee for the opener, good. But if there's not, you can still sell your merch. And I was like, yes. So suddenly I was playing like 80 shows a year with Rodney Crowell as the opening act and playing in the band. Right. So that act of generosity and mentorship, yeah. uh, its I've never seen it anywhere else. I mean, I've never experienced it. I've, you know, There's only so many years in your life. So if I experienced that twice, that would be, I'd, I'd, I'd have to make sure I wasn't going to get struck by lightning, you know? So, (laughs) but okay. So, okay. Now what, what do you learn from that? Yeah. Um, you learn that, uh, you can be a lot more generous than you thought because he, he was, um, you learn that you can be a a band leader with a vision and give people direction while also giving people room. He liked to see what you're, tendencies are and your strengths are Mm -hmm. and your weaknesses and then try to let that fit into what his vision is okay so for a while I was somebody who he saw as that had worked this space had been fit well enough I mean Rodney Stuart Smith is like a compositional guitarist and I'm a little bit more of an improvisational guitarist and I can come up with parts but I might come up with another part five minutes later. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a uh, so Stewart is very like, he's going to compose the perfect were you, part. Were
0: you both in the band at the same time?
1: No, no. But okay. I mean, he had been Rodney's guitarist for 15 years and played on the records and so much like iconic little parts for Stuart's. Right. Yeah. And they're very, and they were intended to be played. And so my, my solos were a little bit more like, you know, coming from that, trying to get emotionally involved in the moment. And I'm not saying Stuart wasn't, I'm just saying, I think that's how he does getting emotionally involved is by composing something that he's totally confident in for like the rest of his days. Or that's the idea that you're, that's the the goal. And I was more like, well, what Robbie Robertson played on big pink sounds a little bit more like it's some weird squawk in the background. I've been listening (laughs) to that my whole life. I want to hear that weird squawk anyway. So it was a really good partnership mainly that he was the boss and I was somebody who was learning and also just the writing. I mean, he would, Bring in songs and we'd work them up on stage, new songs and, and incorporate them into the show. So
2: uh-huh.
1: you know you're learning to be a band member with Rodney, and yeah. those songs are the material you're working with. And then he would sometimes I'd open a show and he'd stand on the side and listen and he'd comment on a song or two, and um, you know he'd tell me how I can improve a song and I'd be like, well, that song's been out on a record for five years. <laughs> <laughs> you're late to and the party. Go, well, you know, you could always make it better, man. You know, <laughs> that's a good lesson. Uh, so it's, oh, it's very good, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, and um, what about being so, in the
0: studio with him? Did, did you find it similar in the, in the sense that he was really generous with space for you or did he give direction or how was, how was that experience?
1: It would be, let me see what you've got going and then we're going to mm-hmm. funnel it through okay. this. We used to call it, uh, Pat Buchanan, the great session player and i used to call it the tone strip search (laughs) i like that or be like what else what else you got you know you play a telecaster what else you got Gretsch. what else you got Les Paul. you know strat silvertone you know you play them all and then you play your vox amp your fender amp your marshall amp your matchless you know all these borrow go borrow another amp and and then next thing you know um uh then you're you're done but it's it's pretty exhaustive because you are there hired to be it reminds me of maybe what the Nashville version of what the Steely Dan session might've been, you know, it's like <laughs> hundred yeah, guitar. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. And, um, or piecing it together until they're happy and you've, you you do not even know what you've played anymore, but then you hear it back here. okay, well that's cool. You know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, definitely they want you and your touch and your tone and your ideas, but then they want to say, okay, now that's a good idea, but right. Right. So very, you know, definitely a producer, you know, obviously a producer and with his co-producer, whoever it might be at the time, you know, it was Peter, Peter Coleman back then, was an English, he called him a lab coat limey. And so he was a <laughs> traditional British engineer. So yeah. you would be like, your amplifier is humming. And I'm like, well, a little bit. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's a man. It's a telly a telly <laughs> plugged into it. You know, compressor pedal. So it's so yeah. And he'd be like, well, that won't do, you know? So we'd spend an hour trying to get rid of the hum. And so that, that was a little bit of that old school, like, right? you know, taking more time to where the, the players like sitting around drinking eight cups of coffee, like getting tired and nervous and can we just play? And so, um,
0: were those done in Nashville or were you, were you working Nashville. in the UK? Okay.
1: No, sure. I don't mean to make that sound like anything negative. I'm just mean to say they were exacting. Yeah. And I, I, and they were generous to allow me to try to be up to the task because they right. had it'd be me and like Pat, who's just a session player or JD Cornfloss who just died, who was yeah, yeah. like never played a mistake. The chart was in front of him. He played it. And if you just gave him a little direction, you know, push on the three at that one point and he'd be like, okay. And it would always be that way from then on. And I'd be like Like, doing it. I'd be putting a push in because I was just playing like the way I play rather than in front of me. And, but, I'm also a writer and an artist and an improviser. You get it. So I get that now that that's yeah. my that I may be feeling at that moment, and that's just the way I am. So yeah. I've, I learned through that that I didn't have to. It, what 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 Rodney wanted from me didn't have to be what I did all the time, but I needed to do it at that time because that was my job, and that's good for you.
0: So did the Rodney gig lead to the Emmy Lou gig? Like they seem interconnected, obviously.
1: At one point, maybe around 2000 six around that time around 2005 six i got a call from emmy lou and she said would you be interested in maybe playing some guitar for me and i was like yes i would <laughs> let and, me think um, about that and then i didn't hear back and then I, I i
0: um had she seen you with rodney crowell probably at some point
1: uh, yeah she had and i think she had just somebody had said well you know was will he's he's a because i was just everywhere working on guitar and playing on records. Yeah. so i was just a guy you know I, right I, I had a good reputation you know which is good and um that is good And so she called me back and said, she said, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize you were, you were playing with, you're still playing with Rodney. I'm not stealing Rodney's guitar player. And I was like, (laughs) well, you can, I mean, you know, it's okay. And she's no, I can't, that's not the way this, this is, you know, we've no, I can't do it. So you, so anyway, sorry, sorry to bug you. You know, I was like, it's okay. So, um, so then I got a call in 2011 and it was um, audition for, Lou Harris, and that was mm-hmm. the only audition I've ever done where it was a cattle call.
2: Okay,
0: there's where they a bunch had of
1: people, maybe 10. Oh, wow, and some really good guitar players like some people that yep. play guitar way better than I do. Uh, as far as like certain things, like the actual playing of like Albert Lee or James Bird right. and stuff, yeah, like I can't really do that very well. I can fake my way, mm-hmm. but I'm not a master of the telecaster country. I didn't grow up playing country music, I grew up playing. I know what you know? Yeah, <laughs> and then I got into real country for, for me was like my parents, Hank Williams records, Grand Parsons with Emmylou. So I was like, you know, kind of freaked out, but it came in a good time when I was in the band was my friends. Brian was in the band, you know, okay. Phil Madeira, Chris Donahue. Yep. So I was comfortable. And when I walked in, everybody stood up and gave me a hug. So I think she uh, saw that and thought, well, this guy would be probably good on the road if he, if he can play and sing. And there are also two or three guys that play guitar way better than anybody I know that, don't, that, that are those guys in Nashville that say, I don't sing. It's like, what are you just trying to get rid of all, half of your opportunities for work? Just, <laughs> just, if you can play guitar that well, you can sing a harmony. You can go, you can find a third or a yeah. fifth. You, know, you can do it. Yeah. Or even just, do it. just say you can. But anyway, I <laughs> figured it out that later. wanted the gig. So I auditioned. We played the six songs I've been given. One included Luxury Liner. So I did have to work up like fast guitar. So I had worked on that. And that went well enough. Mm-hmm. and um and then she said well let's see how you do with like a feature vocal and so she said let's do love hurts which had not been one i've been told to prepare for
0: oh man so okay.
1: everybody sits down and she she gets guitar walks over towards me and we just stand like face to face and we start singing love hurts which i've never wow. sung that song i mean i know it the Everly brothers version the nazareth version and of <laughs> course Earl Graham, which is my favorite and so we sang and I was, and, I, and she said, and she said, this was great. She said, you take the, the melody at first and I take the harmony and then you switch to the harmony and I take the melody and then you switch back to the lead on the bridge. And so I was like, that's nerve wracking, you know, man. You know, and so, I, so we just did. And, and then she, she kind of chuckled about three quarters of the way through and said, so that's, 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 that's fine. Thank you. And I got the gig. So, <laughs> so you must've done that's all right. right. Wow. I guess so. You know, and I've had it ever since, except for uh, when she did the stuff with Rodney, uh, they, they had, um, mostly Jed Hughes, who was actually, again, a person who I think in some ways plays circles around, around me in some ways. And in other ways, not. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that's the way music is, right? Yeah. We all have our things, the things that we can pretend to do, the things we actually do, the things we do if we're just by ourselves at home. Yeah. Um, and I've just kind of learned to, to, part of doing spring break was like, I wanted to do a record that was like what I do when I sit around at home, you know, I mean, I can write clever pop songs. I I grew up with, you know, the Beatles and the kinks and then Elvis Costello and all that stuff. And I love that, but it doesn't really, it's not a, it's more of a cerebral thing.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. And that's fun. Like I love those. And of course I think the kinks can, and all that music when it's at its best is not just cerebral, but soulful and moving, you know, days by the kinks. Yeah, you know, Alison, Miles Costello, You know, you can go on down the line, all the way up to whoever. But I just think that going back to that when I when I got the Blind Willie McTell record because Almond Brothers had the credit, or my parents Hank Williams records. So it does go back all the way to the beginning to my sure. childhood. Hank Williams yeah. Forty Great Hits double album. Um That I want. You know, something about that. Like I had grown into that place, for better or worse. <laughs> to to want to do something like that and, you know, finger pick my guitar and also maybe play a solo in the middle of the song with no accompaniment and sing the song and yeah. put, put it out and feel confident about it. So, and, but at the same time, like stuff like I uh, like it down here was one of the things that I've learned over time as a fan, cause I'm still a huge fan of buy I'm down the a Brazilian music rabbit hole right now. So I'm ordering, you know, nice. N- Nara Leo and, Vinicius De Mares records, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm finding that even with that music, I'll, my favorite is like the Vinicius and Turquino with Maria Batania or with Maria Cruza records where it's just live two nylon string guitars, bass, piano, drums, and there's voice. two male voices, one female voice, and they're live in a club. Right. You know, Vinicius has this like bottle in front of him on table, you know, cause he would did the, I'm the poet. I sit with the writing table and the notebook. Really? And, the bop, oh, and I oh, repo. I play guitar and sing songs, but it was pop music in Brazil. So, I mean, that's, to me, it's fantastic. That's like Mississippi John Hurt meets Europe, old Europe, you know. Right, yeah. Plus, Africa, and just like Mississippi John Hurt, you know, old Europe meets Africa, it's called the South. (laughs) Totally. People in bondage, and then guitars and fiddles, and the same old story that's been told in so many books, but it's true. And so, anyway, as a fan, I finally started to understand that what I actually like the best is to hear people playing in real time. And that's why I like jazz, jazz records and Brazilian records so much is that you just get the mm-hmm. record. And it's like, especially from the sixties and seventies, like, Oh, this is them just playing. Yeah. And it's a capturing a moment, whether it's uh, you know, those, like, we love jazz trumpet records, you know, Miles Davis stuff that they did all those four, those fifties four records, uh, working, cooking, relaxing, whatever the other one is with the Miles Davis quintet. They did those four records in two days. Three Van Gelder, Miles had signed with Columbia, he you owed know, Prestige four records. They were like, "Well, let's do. We need to do this. Let's get our get our repertoire book and go in there and play it." So, the two days he did like 50 songs, and that's those four records.
2: Yeah,
1: not that I'm comparing myself to them, but as far as so that's how you want to present your live in the studio. So, going from jazz stuff, blues stuff, folk stuff, bluegrass stuff, country stuff, gospel stuff, the best mm-hmm. stuff, all the Glenn Johns kind of stuff, the Faces, sure. the Who. Where he's like, the band's down on the floor. I'm recording the whole band. We're going to do it over and over again until we capture that moment. And then I'm going to edit it. So that's it. So, so finally I learned. And after all these years of gigging and sessioning, it's like, well. And you can pull it it's off. Really, well, yeah. It's a, yeah. Yeah. We can pull it off. I, I, you know, we'll never, you know, I'm sure Jimmy Page never thought he was as good as Willie Dixon or Buddy Guy or whatever. You know, and I'm sure that Keith Richards knows he's not as good as Chuck Berry, but, mm. but they can all do it. And it carries yeah. it on. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it's totally. not about how good you think you are. It's about, it's about what you want to do at the time. Like, right. I, I'm inspired. I wrote these songs. These songs need a band. I'm calling Brian or whoever, but I call those yeah. guys because there is loyalty to your friends. And there is the fact that it's going to sound great. You could get somebody else. And I do. I mean, yeah, you know, I use all kinds of different people for different things, but there's also just that the, the enjoyment of the passing of the time of your short days on earth in the company of people that you want to be with. Absolutely, and, uh, you know I'm I'm almost sixty years old. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but <laughs> how am I going to pass my next twenty years of my life if I'm lucky enough to have them? You know, I'm going to write songs, I'm going to record songs, I'm going to play shows, and and I've learned now that I don't have to be on the road 200 days a year. Now, you know, I may, I'm going to be on the road more someday in the future, I suppose, and I hope in a way I hope. In other ways, in other ways, I'm like well,
0: yeah. This year has taught us that that for sure. I mean, if nothing else. Uh, you know, yeah. it definitely makes you think if you're a guy that spent years on the road like you suddenly being cloistered at home for a good year has uh, definitely made you think probably about how you want to spend your
2: time.
1: If you're a writer, there's a certain amount of introversion that you probably possess. Yeah. And so if you can embrace that and then reach out however you can. And I mean, I have it yeah. in space. I mean, I've always right. been able um, to be alone in a crowd yeah. and uh, not unhappily. But uh, I love people. I love gigging. I love performing. I love to yep. be with my friends. But also love to be at home. And I haven't done it. You know, I've been home less. Right. I've lived in Nashville for 33 years, but I've actually been in Nashville about 16 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rest yeah. of the years, somewhere in an airport or at a, at a yep. stage or in the sure. or in the bus. So that was good. It prepared me for 2020. That I had a basis of songs. And a small but loyal fan base, and I also I had songwriting with soldiers, which is something that all this has led me to this point where that's a big thing that I do.
0: Do you do that with Mary Gauthier? Is that with, with yeah? Her she, at she all? It's the same.
1: It's the same. It's the same organization people. that she. Okay. And I played on that, Rifles and Rosary Beads record, and yeah. that's when she said uh, one day she said, "Why don't you do songwriting with soldiers?" I said, "Well, I haven't been asked. So I didn't know who, to, I didn't know how to approach, you know, approach it," and she said well, you should be doing it. And so I got a call a few days later, maybe from Radney Foster, and then ultimately from Darden Smith, who was the founder. Okay. And then I've been, I'm this i into my fourth year. And I'm part of the okay. Warrior Path program, which is you're actually working in a non-clinical sort of education slash treatment for people that are in a program, an 18-month program for post-traumatic growth. And uh, we're a very small part of it, but it's sort of a vital part at the beginning of the process where these people who haven't told their story are afraid to, or isolated feeling and feel like no one will understand that you're uh you've been vetted as someone who can be a a a listener without judgment and then turn it into a song within about a two-hour period right so it's very intense it's very sped up it's like speed dating for songwriters yeah you you write you 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 get the story from like five or six people and then you find the common thread of the story and you two hours later you're singing the song for them. You're recording it on like a little USB mic and come back the next day and go over it in the morning and then you're gone. So it's like, is it it
0: one-on-one or is it you and a group of people?
1: The path is with a group because they're supposed to to tell their story to each other and then to you. Okay. And they maybe haven't told their story even to their spouse or their anybody, you know, like that. And whatever the story might be, this might be, yeah, total therapy. And so, um, they don't know that you've written the same song a bunch of times, sort of not the same song, but it's the it's often the same story at that point in the therapy. Yeah. Um. But it's our job to make it as good as we can. And I'm learning at first, I was really sacred about and really dogmatic about like using only their words. And now mm-hmm. I've learned that like the better I make the song, the stronger the therapy is Okay. especially have them read the lyrics and say, remember when you said that, well, I made it that so it rhymes. Because if the song rhymes and the song has a flow and a rhythm and it comes back to the same verse and chorus and then the bridge is good and it ends right, it draws the listener in and your story is even more understood. And I say, unless you disagree. (laughs)
2: yeah.
1: I mean, really, like if you, if if this isn't what you meant, how you meant it to sound when it's sung, I'll try to change it. But um, usually they're, Pretty happy that, and you. Then they read the lyrics out loud, the original lyrics, and then the tweaked lyrics. So it's the process is part of the lesson that, yeah, you you trusted your fellow soldiers or whoever's there, and then you the soldier, and then the stranger walks in.
0: Yeah, it's intense.
1: And then the stranger read back what your words were, and often they're they're like, "I said that." You're like, "No, this is exactly what you said. I wrote it down verbatim." And they're like, "I can't believe I said that. I didn't think I was." I was like, yeah, you're, what you're saying is this line is going to be the first line of the song. So powerful. And when people hear this, it's going to heal them, too, in right. some way. And you'll be able to play this song for someone who can't understand when you tell your story to them out of context. You say, well, just listen to the song. And it's, it's incredible. But also the fact that you go in and do this in two or three hours with Path is two. I mean, they really want you to do two. It's the end of a day of the day 5 of these guys or women, many women now. Um, and uh, so they, they need to go to bed Right. Get up the next, like go take a hike or run or do yoga or transcendental meditation. But it's powerful. So, and it, mm-hmm. it's certainly as we all know, everything influences what you do. And yeah. so, songwriting for me is like, are we getting to the, are we getting to the point, are we getting to the meat of this? If we're not, then a couple hours, you we know, might put it aside for a while.
0: I think that program is really important. Obviously, for yeah. I'm sure you get a lot out of it as well. But but for the right. therapy level for some of those people, it must be a really important thing. That's cool. Yeah. One last thing I was really curious about was like, as a writer, you've had a lot of people cover your songs. I know like crazily, I'm a big Little Feet fan. I know little feet did a song of yours and uh, a bunch of other people have done them too. Can you just tell me like that, what that experience is like, you know, like with somebody, how does that come to you? Like, do do you get a phone call saying such and such wants to do your song or do you just find out after it's done or how does that all work for you?
1: What happened for me was, I met Jimmy Buffett in 1996 <laughs> at Tipitina's in New Orleans. I was playing with Todd Snyder and Todd was on Jimmy's label, which was right. distributed by MCA. Margaritaville, right? Yeah. So we're playing Tipitina's and Buffett's there and J- Jerry Jeff Walker's there. Jerry Jeff, one wow. on now. He had a house in the French Quarter on Royal Street, had a beautiful house with a courtyard and a fountain. I mean, incredible. Yeah. And um, so they're both there. So we play and it's a big night. They both get up on stage and play with us. And then you go backstage at Tipitina's, which is, you know, like the size of a large closet.
0: I've, I've been in there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's like 150 people back there trying to like <laughs> be part of the big party. Cause Jerry, right. up, Jimmy Buffett, Todd Snyder. And, um, but there's nothing back there. There's not even any beer. It's just sort of like a room, just a room. Yeah. yeah. So, but I'm put, I'm pushed up against the wall with, Jimmy Buffett next to me. And I, I turned to him and I said, Jimmy, I'm Will. I play with Todd. He goes, yeah, yeah. And I said, I said, I'm from Mobile. You know, I know you're from Mobile Gulfport, you know, down there. And the, he goes, yeah, oh, you're another escapee. And um, <laughs> I said, yeah, I guess so. I said, but, but here we are just right down the road in New Orleans. You know, and we laughed and then didn't see him again for uh, six or seven years. In 2003, I got a call from Jimmy's niece and okay. she said, I, who's a friend of mine. And she said, my uncle's asking about you. And I said, wow, what, how'd that kind she goes, he just asked out of the blue the other night we had dinner. And, and he said, what happened to that guy from Mobile? And she said, what guy from Mobile? You know, seven we, years yeah. later. Yeah. And and she, and she said, um, and he said, that guy that played with Todd. And she goes, "Will?" and he goes, yeah, and she goes, well, he's doing music. And, and he goes, oh, okay, that's cool. I was just curious, curious what happened to that guy. <laughs> and so she called me and said, here's this address in the Hamptons in Sag Harbor, you know FedEx or stuff. When you're on my uncle's mind, you never know what's going to happen. So right. I did. I, I put a package together and the music. And of I said, of, I, of your songs or your my, song? my 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 records, basically. Okay, yeah, yeah. The point I think I had, I had three solo records and I sent him that and maybe a CDR of like home demos. And I just said, "Here's my stuff." You know, Melanie told me you were you were asking what I've been up to, so I just said, "This is what I've been up to." And so about three months later, I got a call from the office jimmy buffett's office and they said jimmy wants to record these two songs of yours and i said great
2: hmm.
1: and um i couldn't believe it it was just like wow so and so then i didn't hear anything for another two or three months <clears throat> and uh and then i got a call and they said so jimmy wants to record those songs he also wants you to come play on the album wow and so you would be in key west you know february 5th through 10th of you know february 2004 or whatever and i said Well, let me check my calendar. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that (laughs) that, there's no place I'd rather be than Key West in February working on his Jimmy Buffett record. Of course, you're
0: going to make a Jimmy Buffett record in Key West, right?
1: Right. So we went down there and I went down there and played on the record. And uh, it was a record called License to Chill. And he had uh, two songs earmarked one was called Piece of Work and one was was called uh,
0: That was a big record, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. The Champion of the World. Yeah. And, um, so, on the on the last day, we make these records in like 5 days. On the 5th day, we're getting, we're like 15 songs in and everybody's like getting ready to leave. Yeah. Cuz it's just he's got his band, they're pros. And that, and that record had in the band was uh, also uh Billy Payne from Little Feet. I just had him Sunny on the podcast actually playing guitar. Um Ralph McDonald was still alive and still the percussionist, so I got all his stories about Bill Withers and Harry Belafonte wow. and um uh just Donny Hathaway, you know, all this amazing stuff. He's like, yeah, Donny Hathaway, bro, bro. but you know, he likes to eat, you know, ham sandwiches on Wednesday, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, when I was with Harry Bellante, my first road gig was opening for Martin Luther King and civil rights movement. I was like, Wow. Oh my God. And, um, so, and then Billy Payne. So we, co- we recorded this whole piece of work on the last day. Sonny Landers takes the solo, trades it off to Bill Payne. Cause the record ends up being like a duet with Toby Keith. And so it just feels yeah, okay. like, you know, this is going to be, this is the big time. Yeah. And, um, and a weird combination. It's like Sonny Landry, Billy Payne, Toby Keith, who thought, wow. you know, Jimmy Buffett, of course, he's got his eye on like the great music. He's got his eye on the marketplace. So, yeah. um, yeah. anyway, but at the dinner that night, Billy Payne was sitting next to me and we're having a glass of wine. And he says, he goes, man, I've really enjoyed working with you. And I'm like, well, man, what a thrill to work with you. I mean, you're one of my heroes. And he's like, ah, yeah. you know, whatever. Thank you. You know, I said, <laughs> I said, no, for, for real. I said, I've been and I named all the stuff. You know, yeah, James Taylor and Bob Seger and Linda Ronstadt, and, of course, Little Feet. You know, and he's like, thanks, man. He goes, he goes. Well, let me ask you this. He said, we, I really like that piece of work song. So what? Why didn't he, Jimmy record the Champion of the World? And I said, well, you'll have to ask him that. I said, I wish he had, but I'm not greedy. You know. And he goes, well, what if Little Feet recorded it? And I was like, oh, cool, great. So really, that's how that happens for a guy like me who never really fit into like the seem never to fit in like the corporate, like my publishing deal didn't lead right. to cuts. I've never yeah. had a national cut, but I pay my mortgage with songwriting royalty. Right. And it's because Jimmy Buffett's recorded like 15 songs.
0: So he's just kept coming back to you for more and more songs.
1: We've been working together since 2004 on every record. Amazing. And,
0: and do you co-write with him now, or do you just still send him songs?
1: Yeah, and this last time we co-wrote, because of schedules, and it was just pre-COVID, right pre-COVID, we recorded the last record in January, and it came out in July, okay. um, four co-writes on there, um, and played nice, on man. the record, played on yeah. all these records. So I'm an honorary coral reefer now, and um, wicked! what a great group of people. I mean, Mac- McAnally, um McAnally, yeah. Mike Utley, the whole band. Eric Darkins, the percussionist who replaced Ralph McDonald, so you had this another virtuoso percussionist, but this time a guy from Nashville instead of a yeah. you know guy from Harlem and Trinidad. But uh, Robert Greenidge on the steel drums. I mean, it's just Killer. the whole band. Yeah, it's just a great family.
0: Do you tour with those guys ever or or not? I have done
1: dates. I'm, I usually I, I can be the sub guitarist for Peter Mayer sometimes, okay. which is again Perfect. I'm not qualified to fill those shoes, but but I do. They call me. They know I I will show up and yep. and I won't fuck it up you know fuck it up so, too bad <laughs> yeah so that's me that's my thing it won't fuck it up too bad. but so and then you know I'm, I'm a i'm a producer so um and i've produced a bunch of records so shamika copeland's records out right now and i've co-wrote seven of the songs but i also produced the last two records and they're really okay good so records. when you
0: produce two you'll 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 do co-writing as well generally with the artist sure. Yeah. i mean yeah. I, I
1: love to do co- i want to do co-writing i mean that's yeah not only is it a part of production, like you actually had a hand on what the material will be. Yeah. um, Besides just choosing it. um, You, and then, you know, the, because uh, it also is a, it's a great way to make a living. You know, you got songs on records that are coming out. Yeah. And um, and that's just a reality. It's not me being like, I got to write so I can make a dime. It's like, we wrote this because we wanted to make this kind of record and we needed this kind of song. And then we picked these others for obvious reasons or not so obvious, but yeah. So, so, uh, but it all does come back around to the song. And if you can write a song, then you should write as much as you can, because that's going to be the thing that is your expression in its purest form that you had some hand and molding and creating and maybe control if that's what you're into. And, um, and then, they can actually collect royalties on songs which is like I've, you know like I've earned royalties off one record I've produced right and I've produced about 50 records
0: alright everybody that was my conversation with Will Kimbrough hope you enjoyed it we'll see you in a couple of weeks not a month this time we'll see you in a couple of weeks for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers we'll see you then Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then.